I still choose to believe the U.S. pork industry is a global leader. We have technical knowledge. We are a comparative. We have a lot of comparative strengths in the global marketplace. So I don't think there, anything we're talking about here is the long-term demise of the pork industry. Don't overreact to that. But I do think there's some economic pain in the short term before we're able to regain, you know, kind of more stable profit. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like MS Gold, the best hygiene products in livestock farming. Swine management to the next level. Cloudfarms.com. Ivonic. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. This episode's sponsored highlight is about AB Vista, an animal nutrition technology company offering innovative products and new applications for the swine industry. The combination of AB Vista enzymes, technical services, and nutrition expertise provides the industry with new opportunities to further improve production efficiencies. Fiber is receiving renewed interest due to its influence on the microbiome, and AB Vista has brought together research experts to discuss the industry's knowledge of fiber functionality and to introduce a stimbiotic targeted to improve fiber digestion. To request access, contact NAM at abvista.com. That's N-A-M at abvista.com. everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Richard Brock, who's the president of Brock's Associates. And I also have Glenn Tonzer with me, who is a professor at Kansas State University. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you today? Good. Good morning, Laura. Doing well. Thanks for having us on, Laura. Well, I'm glad to have you both on today. Um, before we get started really talking about the this topic, and it's a a very important topic to talk about these days. I'd like to have you both introduce yourselves a little bit better than what I just did, just so that our audience knows a little bit more about you. Um, so Richard, let's have you go first. Right. Um, I was uh, born and raised on a grain and livestock farm in central Indiana and uh, went to undergrad at Purdue and grad school at Cornell in Ag Econ. And, um, and then I, I decided to go into the grain industry and ended up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin with a publishing and, and consulting company. And, uh, and then in about 1978, I, I met Forrest Mars. I heard him give a speech at the time. He, he and Millen family were rated the two wealthiest families in the United States, Mars, M&M's, Uncle Ben's Rice, Cal Kent. Anyway, uh, Mars hired, hired me to, old man did, to be his personal commodity consultant, uh, specializing in corn. They also involved the corn industry. And, uh, and then two years later, he, um, set me up in business, basically. And that's how I got going. And I stayed in Milwaukee when I quit my job with the other company. And so that's why we're there. And, uh, we thought about moving the company elsewhere, but, uh, today, I mean, we're a relatively small company, 21 employees. Uh, we manage grain sales for grain producers in over 800,000 acres. And uh, we do risk management in the poultry and pork industry. Several of the biggest pork companies I uh, personally handle their corn and soybean meal purchases. And, uh, you know, that's, that's basically what we do. We have five offices. Our primary one is in Milwaukee. We have another one in Destin, Florida, uh, which is where I'm uh, right now. 
and um, my summer months are in the Milwaukee office for obvious reasons. And and so, you know, I travel a lot. I do about, uh, still do, I've been trying to cut back about 50 convention speeches a year. And so that's pretty much what we do. I'm, I am cutting back and I've got other people that run the day-to-day operations of the company now. So, uh, so I specialize basically in, in pork uh, risk management and corn, soybeans, and cotton. Perfect. Well, that's a great introduction. Glenn, how about you? Would you introduce yourself as well? Yeah, so I grew up on a hog farm in Missouri. That's relevant for today as I empathize with the situation the pork industry is in. Uh, my PhD is actually from K-State as well agriculture economics. I was on the faculty of Michigan State for four years. And then since 2010, I've been back here at Key State as a faculty member. I spend probably 95% of my time in the research and extension realm. So conducting active research or engaging extension is educating those off campus, engaging with the meat and livestock industry. Almost all that falls in the beef or the pork space, uh, working closely with quite a few stakeholders. Uh, I've had the pleasure to do one of these with you before, Laura. And if we don't mess it up too much today, we'll probably do a third one. <laughs> no, that sounds great. And I, I agree. This is always a good good time to listen to individuals. And I, I like to hear the economics. It's something that I don't do every day. And so it's good for me to stay current as well. And so I look forward to this conversation with both of you gentlemen this morning. Um, what we're really going to talk about today is I think we'll first start with the the U.S. banking crisis, talk a little bit about that. And then really jump into what we can do today for the U.S. pork producer as they're facing high input costs and currently low profit opportunities. And so maybe let's first just start with just the, the banking crisis. What is it and and what really happened there? Um, so I'll probably have Richard talk about that, I think. Okay, I'll give a real, <clears throat> real quick summary. Uh, this happened, probably most of it happened in the third week of March. And uh, uh there were several banks that had a crisis, but there were four primary ones. And the biggest one was Silicon Valley Bank in Silicon Valley, uh, California. Very different situation than any other banks that most of us would work with. Uh, Silicon Valley specialized in high-risk loans uh, to the high-tech business and, and, and related industries. And, and one that happened is when interest rates were low, going all the way back to 2019, uh, a lot of uh, banks were searching and, and trying to grab for, for returns, trying to make any kind of money they could because r- rates were so low. So, and this was a very fast-growing bank, and they made, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. They made a strategically extremely bad decision into b- borrowing long-term, uh, investing long-term into this money. To give you an example, there, there are two different routes most banks go to when they're growing and money's coming in. You can go either into uh, 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 securities that are available for sale immediately, or you can go into held to maturity securities, which means if you buy a 20 year bond, you got to hold it for 20 years uh, before it goes. Well, they went from, uh, in, in since 19, 2019 to the end of 2022, they went from 14 billion in average for sale, which means you can cash them out anything to 27 billion. But in their hold to maturity, uh, they went from 14 to $99 billion, and they were locking in you know, a 1.5% rate. Well, then when uh, rates went up, you know, the price of those bonds went down, and all of a sudden they were $21 billion in the hole if they were mark-to-market. There was a run on the bank. Uh, smart investors knew what was going on, and, uh, 
And so in a matter of uh, 48 hours, they were done. And uh, um, the uh, government came in and bailed them out. A signature Bank and, and uh, First Republic Bank and similar issues. Uh, and then, of course, there was Swiss Bank was the only international bank. Uh, and that was due to a lot of poor loans that have been made over the number of years and, and also due to the interest rate. So, you know, there was uh, only a handful of banks. And if you take a look at uh, the banks that most of the pork industry works with, um, I doubt if uh, any, uh, there might have been one or two that had loans with some of these banks, but I, I would find a, a very small percentage. And so in the agricultural banks, and, and I'm sure uh, Glenn has a good as good or better handle on, a, on this than I do, but they're all in very solid shape. Uh, I don't think we have to worry about that. And so so this was something that made a lot of news. I think it's behind us now. If a bank was in this kind of a trouble, it would have already come to surface by now, uh, along with some of these others. So the ag lending, uh, you know, concentrated primarily in 10 large institutions in the United States. They're all very solid banks. And, and that's not really the issue. And uh, as as you mentioned, Laura, uh, in the pork industry right now, our, our biggest concern is um, pork prices in the cash market this this week. Uh, just yesterday, hit the lowest price since December of 2020. And uh, you combine that with the fact that now producers are paying a lot more interest. I mean, the pork industry borrows a lot of money, and, and particularly operating capital. And when you go from essentially a 2.5% interest uh, or 3% on your borrowed capital up to 7 7.5%. That changes your cash flows a lot. I mean, plus, the pork industry, along with many other industries, is impacted by the high labor cost. I mean, you can't avoid it. I mean, just people working in barns, the, the entire industry, it's just, it's, it's just been very... Uh, a very big struggle, and then we have all this pork coming to the market at the same time. So, I mean, the, the market is, is cyclical. Uh, the pork industry will work through this. Uh, I mean, normally supply uh, problems take care of themselves. Uh, we'll, you know, uh, the interesting thing is uh, pork is unlike corn. We're going to consume whatever is there. It's just what, at what price are we going to consume it? And so you get the price low enough, we'll consume it, we'll get the inventories down, and, and then we'll, we'll bounce back. But uh, the short term here, it, it's going to be a squeeze, in my opinion, and look forward to see if, what Glenn's thought is on the same thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll react to uh, Richard gave us a lot there, which on balance I definitely concur with. Um, you know, the story of kind of how the quote-unquote banking crisis, and we can even debate it as a crisis because of how concentrated it was, um, I'm not sure it is for the traditional ag lending space. So I agree with that. Um, for those that follow me on Twitter, uh, I liked yesterday um, uh, a Nate Kaufman tweet, uh, just for reference. And uh, Kaufman is with the Kansas City Federal Reserve, which is the reason I bring it up. And the Kansas City Federal Reserve is particularly focused on ag lending issues, just given the area of the country that they're based in and the states they look at. And there was a really useful chart that was summarizing new loans. So there's an important distinction here is if you're operating on a loan that was you know originated, say, three years ago, you still have a really favorable rate. But if you went into the bank yesterday and tried to operate, you open up a new operating loan, then consistent with Richard's point, you're facing probably at least a 4% higher rate than the year before. Um, you know, something along the lines of 3.5 up to 7.5 is the change in the commercial bank loan rate in the last 12 months. So most operations are going to pay something above that. So the typical bank is going to put a margin on top of that. Um, Altman's tweet 
as a nice bar chart summarizing that and so forth. But the punchline would be is if you walked in to operate, you know, open up a new operating loan today, you're likely facing a rate that's higher than it's been since sometime in 2008. So that is a notable jump. <clears throat> For context on impacts on margins, um, some of the information from Lee Schultz, who's kind of my partner in crime at Iowa State University, fellow geeky economist that quite a few listeners probably know of either directly or indirectly. And Lee's a friend of mine, so I mean that from a good way. Um, he puts out profit margins, you know, they're kind of estimates for a quote unquote typical Iowa system. Um, I always interject whether it's his resources or mine. There is no such thing as typical. So you need to know your own cost, right? To really take this next point further. But for context, market hogs that were leaving Faro to finish operations when the year started at about $3 per head of operating cost associated with them. If nothing changes from now, as we go through 2023, and I'm sure something will, but just stick with the union kind of comment for a moment, we're going to add at least a dollar, maybe a dollar fifty per head on that. That's really important in any year, but it's particularly important, as Richard said, when the margins are adverse. So that same exercise that Lee oversees, uh, market hogs that left the operation in February were sold at a loss of $45 per head unless you had a manure credit. So if you worked with a crop operation, you got some credit out of your manure and it was worth roughly $10 per head, but that just means it was a loss of $35 instead of $45 per head. So the margins are very tight. We're in a high cost relative to revenue environment for anybody that's producing pigs. Um, and I don't think we're done with that squeeze. I would agree with that component of Richard's comments as well. So let's talk a little bit about the pigs and then we're going to go back to the interest rate for a moment. So um, what are some things that we've seen producers do in the past when we've had these types of adverse relationships? Not so much the high interest rates at the moment, but when our operating costs and, and so forth exceed the the amount of value that those pigs are selling for at market. And then what are some things that we should be thinking about doing here in the near future to offset that? Well, I'll take a stab at it first. Um, like Glenn said, uh, we're, we're facing an environment right now we really haven't seen since 2008. And so we have a lot of people making management decisions that weren't even in the business then. And so, you know, there's not a lot of history there to, to, to draw from as to how people are going to act and react uh, to these type of adverse uh, market uh, conditions. Uh, but j just off the cuff, I, I would think that we'll see uh, some cutback, uh, maybe a little bit more culling of sales, uh, slowing of, of expansion until we can get our supply side in, in, in order. Uh, I don't see that there's a whole lot of choice in that matter. Uh, uh, Glenn will have a better handle on that than I would. Uh, but I, I just, you know, I can't see uh, that the pork industry is going to try to expand in this type, type of environment. The only uh, livestock industry that expands in this kind of environment is, is a dairy industry because somebody I'm thinking about their monthly uh, milk check. And if their milk check's going down, they have more cows. Makes no logical sense, but that's the way the industry's always worked, and that's always happening right now too. They're in the same situation, and because uh, their their profit margins have deteriorated significantly in the last six months. So you know, I I, I think that's the one of the ways we bail out of this is, is we've got to, uh, the industry has got to get their uh, volume under control, and uh, you know, demand and in, in uh, pork, in my opinion is pretty much um, uh, inelastic. You know, beef is elastic, it impacts the price. Pork does not react to price. Most, you know, the per capita consumption of pork has been, give or take two pounds, 50 pounds a person for as long as we've all been alive. 
you know, if you're three slices a day bacon eater, you don't buy four if it gets cheaper. You don't cut back to two if it gets higher. I mean, it's just the way we are in the pork industry. And so you know, most of our impact on prices is going to come from supply. And, uh, and of course, you know, our exports have not been as strong either uh, since China's production has come back. And uh, so, you know, it will straighten out, but I, I think it's got to be something from supply. And so at that point, I turn it over to, to Glenn and, and let have his have his viewpoint. Arts, I would interject, I guess, to add to some of that is the decision to expand or further shrink the herd is broader than just the current interest. And, in, you know, even, even the immediate bottom line, uh, my assessment here, you know, we're in April of 23, is the regulatory uncertainty the global environment for trade, and that's more important today than it was three years ago and certainly than it was 13 years ago, uh, for the prospects of prosperity, if you're a hog producer in the U.S., uh, there's more great clouds on the regulatory as well as the global trade front than there was in the past. Now, I always interject, I'm going to choose to remain optimistic that we can remain a major protein producer and exporter because we have a global comparative advantage there, and I think the world wants protein. Um, but there's a lot of geopolitical challenges to realize that. Um, and if you have uncertainty on that, that's going to give you a pause because that's home to at least a fourth of value or system these days. Um, some of the regulatory uncertainty might get sorted out in the courts in the weeks ahead. Um, but I'd be remiss if I didn't interject those points here as well. Um, Richard brought up the comment about you know, that we have a lot of people making management decisions that weren't around or at least in a management position in 2008. Um I concur with that, but I'm going to put a shout out to the lending community itself. I'm guessing Richard was referring to the hog production side and management side when he said that. Um, I suspect there's quite a few loan officers, like your initial point of contact, that might be roughly my age. So I'm 42. I was born in 1980. I was not making those kind of major decisions for anybody in 2008, you know, myself. Uh, the shout out would be whether you are on the lending side of this or the hog production side of this, um, seek out somebody that's been there before. I think on both sides of that, you can learn from it. Now, that does not mean we need to do the exact same thing we did in 2008 or what we did in the 70s. I don't go too far with that comment, but there is value and experience, and we need to you know update it to the modern realities after that. But uh, that's a shout out to my fellow 40-year-olds and certainly 30-year-olds and so forth. Uh, reach out and tap some of the experience. Um, specific to lending, you know, there is discussions about can you redo your long-term note right? In a way to try to cover some of your operating costs and so forth. And this gets quickly into each individual's business discussions, but you can sort of spread out the shock of a higher operating rate note. If you're able with some equity position to redo your longer term, you know, multi-year fixed cost notes. So uh, those discussions are complicated. I think I made the comment last time I was on with you, Laura, you know, go buy your banker a cup of coffee. Uh, it's definitely time to go buy your banker a cup of coffee. They'll probably buy it for you, but reach, reach out to them. Um, be proactive. It's always better to visit with them, quote unquote, on your turn, and you be the proactive one rather than waiting for them to come to you. Yeah, that's absolutely a great point. And I, I think you both have raised some very good points, particularly around the fact that there are many people that have not been in this situation before. And certainly the situation in 2008 is different than what we're looking at today in, in 2023 with, with interest rates in particular being as high as, as we've seen in a while. Um, so if we look forward a little bit, get your crystal ball out, where do you see us going? You've talked a little bit about supply and demands. I had circled as well trade and, and where trade exports are going. But what do you see happening in terms of interest rates and, and hog prices in general 
you know, in the next six months to a year. Now, on the interest rate side, um, I think we're very near a top. Uh, I, I don't believe, uh, I think everyone would agree the Federal Reserve reacted way too slow in, in raising these rates. They should have started a year earlier. And But at the same time, they're getting some help for the fact that uh, it appears we're going into a recession with all the layoffs in California. You know, the high-tech industry led the economy up. Now they're leading it down. And uh, the employment rate has gone up significantly in the West Coast. And and that is putting the brakes on a lot of areas uh, of the economy. And and as, as a result, I don't think they're going to have to raise rates a lot more to uh, help control inflation. The biggest part of the inflation has been labor cost, and that's probably uh, near top as well. So I, I think we're going to get some alleviation there. And so, you know, and, and Glenn made a, a comment on interest rates. Whenever you have an inverted yield curve, which we do right now, you know, our rule of thumb is you don't really want to be locking in long-term rates. Um, uh, you know, you're going to have to bite the bullet short-term on the higher rates, but that yield curve will come in uh, eventually. And so you don't want to be locking in 20-year rates at, at these higher rates right now, in, in my opinion. And, and so that's But the other point that Glenn uh, brings up that I think is, is extremely important right now is this great cloud and what's going on in the world right now, worldwide demand and the, the regulatory issue. Uh, obviously, we need uh, we need to increase our demand on, on the export side. Uh, you know, our, we're pretty well locked in about what we are consuming domestically and, and our expansion is going to be on the, on the export side. So, you know, if I were to put a time limit on this, you take a look at the long-term profit cycles uh, in, in pork. Uh, we're probably, I think we're looking at some some relief, uh, maybe in the fourth quarter this year, possibly in the third. But, uh, you know, I, I think we're going to be in negative margins for the next four quarters. And uh, and then we'll, we'll come out of this. I mean, it's unfortunately, bottoms are tough in profit cycles. And, and we really just entered this one. And uh, and so, you know, it takes some time to work out of it. And then and then we'll go back. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Glenn referred to the, some work in Iowa State. They've done, they do some pretty, have some pretty good charts on the profit cycles and furrow to finish hog operations that I, I use a lot in, in our publication. And, uh, and it's, uh, you know, it takes a while to work out of it. Uh, we, we go through a period of high prices, prices, and you go through a period of losses. And, and that's the way it's always been. And so it's going to take us a while to work out of this. So, Laura, what I would add is maybe some additional resources to reinforce some of those points is, I lead something called the Meat Demand Monitor Project here at K-State. It is pork and beef checkoff funded. It's a large national survey of U.S. residents. Been going on over three years. The, the relevance of that for today's discussion is for about six months in a row now, we've seen importance of price grow in protein purchasing decisions and lots of other related confirmation, I'd say, because this is surprising to me, but confirmation that households are tightening their, their budgets. So the typical U.S. resident is falling behind. Still today, the cost of living is outpacing the wages. Some of that's by design, but Federal Reserve and so forth. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It's just part of what we're kind of living through. Um, so that reinforces some of Richard's other points there. To, to the point on kind of where we're going, I'll, I'll try to interject some additional uh, rays of sunshine. The, the industry is very resilient. So in my intro, I made the comment I grew up on a hog farm and my high school graduating year was 1998. Well, 1998 will resonate with 
anybody that's older than me that's been in the hog industry for a while, because 1998 was a year where you basically couldn't give a pig away in northern Missouri or Iowa. Uh, that specific situation was we had too many market hogs relative to shackle states. And, you know, that relationship is always important, but the industry adjusted and had periods of thriving thereafter. Uh, that's not to say it was without pain. There definitely was massive losses, particularly like December of 98. Uh, but those that were able to sustain their operations made some of the changes that we're alluding to here. And others, of course, were positioned to do well later. So I still choose to believe the U.S. pork industry is a global leader. We have technical knowledge. We are a comparative we have a lot of comparative strengths in the global marketplace. So I don't think there, anything we're talking about here is the long-term demise of the pork industry. Don't overreact to that. But I do think there's some economic pain in the short term before we're able to regain, you know, kind of more stable profit. Yeah, I agree with you both. I, I watch those charts too that come out and, and talk a lot about that with others of the, the highs and lows of the swine industry and, and how you try to hedge your, your losses and, and move forward and, and take opportunity where we do expect to have those profits. And so I do thank you both for your insight. And as I look at our time, we're actually getting close to the end of our time. And so before we jump into a couple of other questions, I'd like to ask you both to maybe give just a couple of quick tips or, or pointers that you would provide to our to our listeners today based on our conversation of things that they can do in, in the immediate future just to offset their their potential losses as we move through this difficult time? Well, a um, couple of things. And I, I think, and we talked earlier, Laura, before we began, you know, what we see is a key uh, trait in, in, in a lot of people and what makes them successful in, in this kind of environment. And where my firm and myself, we're primarily involved on the risk management side of livestock operations and in uh, my time in the last two weeks has been doing a lot of webinars with clients, and it almost all involves it being able to make a decision. You know, people think having the right information and right advice is the most important thing in, in managing risk. I, I don't agree with that. That is important to have the right information and the right advice, but I find a lot of people have the difficulty making the decision. How do you take that information and make a decision? And I often refer to companies like, like Cargill. You know, they, they give managers a, a, a profit center and they make the decision. They don't do it by committee approach. And I find too many times uh, people do it by committee approach. And, you know, there there aren't many statues built for committees uh, in, in the country and uh, other than maybe the apostles. And, uh, you know, most statues are built for individuals. And it is a unique trait. Uh, the people... You know, I, I find particularly like just say buying corn, buying soybean meal. People want to know for sure if the decision is going to be right. Well, you don't know if it's right the day you're doing it. You know, and we can't make decisions by 2020 hindsight. Uh, you, you have to know what the, it takes to make the decision. And I think that we are in a key decision making time frame right now uh, in a, a lot of, of the industry. And for example, yesterday I did a webinar with a, a large feed cu customer client and, you know, I said, what we don't want to be doing right now is locking in protein prices. You know, the protein market, in our opinion, is somewhat like the pork industry. It's in a downward spiral right now. Corn prices, unless we don't get it, unless we have some crop scares, we think corn prices are headed uh, quite a bit lower. And, and it's the same thing true in soybean meal. So you've got to make those decisions. 
And unfortunately, I think a lot of people make a decision to buy it because it's cheaper than it was last week. Well, that's irrelevant. And so I just think the decision-making process is more important when you get it in market turns right now than it is in most other times of the year. And, and that's where we're trying to maintain our concentration with our client base. So, Laura, the, the one I would give that ties into today's theme in particular would be the more successful operators, whether they're the CEO level or just the price risk management level, wherever they are in this story, um, make decisions pretty much ignoring past decisions. So, of course, we're human. We learn from that. But if you fail to hedge and in hindsight, you wish you hedged or you did hedge and now you're beating yourself up or whatever the example would be, the more successful folks are the ones that don't self-criticize over and over and over again. Um, and in the environment we're sitting here right now, obviously had one went in and proactively protected the firm, right? It may not be as bad as it is if you're fully exposed to market. It's still a negative margin, by the way, but it may not be as extreme. But that is not relevant for sitting here on Thursday morning, early April, to make decisions for going forward. It's human nature that we do that, and it's very tempting to do that. Um, and as an active parent and husband, I'm guilty of doing that and lots of other things outside of today's discussion, right? Because we're human. But the successful folks are effective in not looking back. I mean, they try to learn from it, I agree, but they're really effective with looking forward. And that's hard. It's even harder when the margins are adverse and the stress is up. But frankly, it's even more important to do it when the margins are negative and the stress is up. So, um, that will lean out some operators through this process as well. You're both very good tips, gentlemen. Thank you very much for those those insights and certainly your input today on on markets and where we're headed and some suggestions on, on what we can do as we go forward. It's time for our famous three. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Genesis, the first power in genetics. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition, providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits. Curious to discover if you can manage your animal data and team's work with the touch of a finger? Some of the best and largest pig farm holdings worldwide use cloud farms to collect and analyze data like never before. How? With the most advanced mobile app to collect data accurately and super fast. For breeding, farrowing, weaning, and finishing. Also, this is the easiest way to assign tasks to your team and motivate to work more efficiently. You instantly understand what gets done on time and what doesn't. So yes, you can manage your animal data with the touch of a finger. Well, as we wrap up our time today, there's a couple of questions we'll ask you each um, comparative to, to what we're talking about. I'm not going to ask you your favorite spine resource, but rather I'm going to ask you if there are some additional resources that our listeners could potentially go to um, to get some additional information as we go through this period of time. Glenn, I'll let you lead off with that one. That's, that's more your expertise area than mine. Um, because I remember it's firm to our own website, which not would not be fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sitting there wearing a K State purple shirt. I'm on you know, K State payroll payroll. So of course I gotta say all K State resources, but more more seriously, we have a website here called Ag Manager.info where we cross link a lot of things that are helpful for the broader meat livestock industry. 
Um, I referenced Lee Schultz at Iowa State, uh, their decision maker website, and Richard reinforced a couple of those charts. You know, those are there as well. Um, and, and I made a note earlier about the Kansas City Federal Reserve. So I'll bring it back a little more narrow to today's theme, at least kicked off on the banking situation and interest rates. Uh, the Kansas City branch of the Federal Reserve has an extra focus on ag compared to some of the other regional um, branches within the Federal Reserve. Um, and they have a lot of good resources as well. Uh, I fully recognize not all our listeners on Twitter. That was a comment I made there. But, uh, you know, there are things posted to their website. They do symposiums off and on, things going on in the broader ag space. Uh, sometimes if you're, they may not have something that's as narrow as fair to finish returns like Lee's resource at Iowa State, but the broader, you know, environment for being an ag operator in the Midwest, they have a lot of good resources as well. So uh, for listeners that just want broader education on the topic, it's not just the land-grant universities by any means. Hopefully we're helpful, but it's also, you know, the Federal Reserve and other allied partners as well that I encourage you to make use of those resources on the web. We also rely on a lot of those that, that Glenn just pointed out. We'll go to his website. We'll go to uh, Iowa State. We also use University of Illinois has a, has a very good one at, as well. Uh, a lot of pertinent information at that one. And, uh, of course, I'm going to, I'm going to plug the www.brockreport.com if anybody wants to go to that and see our information. But uh, I, I think the land-grant universities do, do a fabulous job. And uh, uh, between Glenn and, 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 uh, and Lee, uh, we use a lot of their charts and graphs. And I, I don't want to reinvent the wheel when it comes to doing that fundamental research. So we rely on, on a lot of their information. And Laura, real quick, it's real important your listeners know K-State's basketball team made it further in the March Madness tournament than Iowa State, Illinois. (laughs) Don't mention Purdue, okay? And Purdue's included, that's right. Oh, my. It's printed all the tools, so got to do that right Absolutely embarrassing. No, you guys, that that cracks me up. We're not going to judge the ability to handle the economic crisis of of swine industry based on our March Madness, although I know, Glenn, you wanted to talk about that so badly today, so you got your plug in. I found a way. Actually, (laughs) Laura, a little more seriously, I do encourage our operators, um, there is a serious mental health component to this discussion, Yes. Um, so I don't want to make light of that. And for me, watching basketball because I'm a basketball geek is a way to show out. Uh, I do encourage those that are listening that are financially stressed and they're subsequently stressed more broadly, find a way to shut down for a moment. Uh, and for me, that was watching March Madness. Um, I teed it up from a joking perspective, but actually it's a useful education point is find a way to um, check out and reset your head a little bit is really important in this environment. One of the things we've heard a lot in some of these podcasts lately when I talk about a trait that that somebody possesses that's helped them be successful, I've heard a lot lately of resilience. And it's something that I think goes in here as well as is that trait of resiliency and managing these tough times. And and however that resiliency shows up, it's it's important. And so, you know, a suggestion like that to find a way to release that that tension, that stress, that just helps our resilience. And so I think that actually is a, a great suggestion and it ties in very well to some of the traits we've heard recently. Um, are there any other traits along the lines of that that you think um, might help somebody be successful as they go through this period of time? I think Glenn's comment was very good and that you got to find a way to relax. Although I'll, I'll say watching Purdue had a reverse effect for me. Uh, it added more stress than, than, than yeah, it was that bad. 
<laughs> anyway, but it, it, it is important uh, to be able to clear your head and to try and be logical. And what I find in the risk management side, Glenn referred to this uh, as well, you know, you need to make put your mistakes behind you. I find so many times producers say, well, I did that last year. I'm not doing that again. All they really learned was whatever they did last year didn't work. It doesn't mean it's not going to work this year. And uh, the decision-making process can be fairly complex. And, uh, you know, a lot of people only do it as a part-time versus ourselves doing it full-time. And it really, uh, it, it's, yeah, I, I can normally uh, recognize some issues right away when I start working with the producer group and how they're making their decisions. And some are very logical and very good. Some are very good. Uh, but, uh, you know, I find it in times like this, and, and these are stressful times uh, in a lot of pork operations, uh, the decision-making process gets confused. There's a lot of finger-pointing if you've got six people involved in, in making the risk management decisions. And as it, once you get to that point, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to keep a straight mind and, and, and have balance when you're doing it. So, you know, whether it's going fishing or 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 whatever hobby a person might have, you need to get away from this now and then. But that doesn't mean putting off the decisions. Decisions have to be made. The thing I would add, Laura, that I think is more relevant today than, say, 20 years ago in challenges like this, is looking beyond the optimal management of this pin or this bar. I mean, there's a lot in our system that does it at that level for good reason, right? The low more level we do that. Um, but at certain input cost lines or target output at weights and so forth might be a little more off the table to adjust today than they were 20 years ago. And I'm going to, I'm going to point to labor in particular for a moment. So I would discourage us from thinking about making drastic changes on the labor front to save a penny. Now he's a penny to make the extreme point, but you know, there are ways to save, reduce input costs by trimming inputs here and there and so forth. But I think with the broader challenge the industry has, on getting labor, sustaining labor, keeping it showing up once you have it on payroll and so on and so forth. Um, I think the labor category is less on the table for one to pitch a penny on today than it was before. Uh, speaking to the production side in particular, the manning, managing pork production. Um, conversely, maybe it actually makes sense to sell five pounds lighter than you ever thought you would or some other adjustment in your system. So being aware of what your most constrained resource is and I'm interjecting here, at least for some, it is labor. It's not the incoming pigs, it's labor. Um, think about how to optimize this in a stressful environment a little bit differently than maybe you would have 10 or 20 years ago. Because when things straighten back out, let's just say in 12 months for simplicity or for a moment, you're going to need labor. And I'm not optimistic that the broader U.S. labor situation is going to be a lot better in 12 months. So don't you know handicap yourself 12 months from now by decisions today. Great suggestions from you both. And I Greatly appreciate all the information that you've shared today, and it's certainly been a pleasure visiting with you both. Um, again, for our audience, as we wrap up today, just to remind you of who we've been speaking with, this is Richard Brock from Brock & Associates, as well as Dr. Glenn Tonser, who's with Kansas State University. Thank you both, gentlemen, so much today. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having us on, Laura. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, 
you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.